People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Susan Sands, PhD, is a clinical psychologist known for her trailblazing work in female development and body-based disorders. She incorporates Buddhist thought and meditative practices in her work with patients. A former journalist, she publishes and presents widely on the topic of eating disorders and body image and is a core faculty member at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California in San Francisco. So, Susan, welcome to Health Geek. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Doro. Well, I'm so excited to have this opportunity to talk to you about your book, The Inside Story, and to talk about aging gracefully and mindfully and all the things you talk about. And I love the premise of the book. I'd love to know a little bit about you. Are you from the Berkeley Hills, I think I learned? I am. I've been here since 1970. Do you have a family or? I do. You know, I'm living here in the house with my husband at this point. Mm -hmm. We have three grown kids, a couple of grandchildren. Good. And, um, and that's about it. Sounds like life is good. So when did you become a writer? Well, you have a PhD. So tell us a little bit about your background. I started out, you know, as an English major in college. So I was interested in writing and words. And then I became a journalist in my 20s. I actually worked for Newsweek for a while, and I worked for a local paper here. I was an on-the-air reporter for KQED. So I got that sort of way of writing that's, you know, more clear and more aimed at a popular audience. Then I got my PhD in psychology. Then I started writing professional articles, and I've written over 20 you know, for the last number of years. And they're very different. You know, they're very theoretical. And every idea has to be attributed to somebody. And you can't just speak for yourself and all this. In my mid-60s, I started thinking, I'd really like to write a book for a wider audience. And selfishly, something that I could learn from. You know, I'm entering this new stage of life. I'd like to learn everything I can about it so I can do it as well as I can. So that's when I made the switch, and I'm so delighted because it's such fun to write more from myself. Your book is called The Inside Story, The Surprising Pleasures of Living in an Aging Body. So can you explain the premise, the idea behind the inside story and why you called it that? The sort of fun reason is that the inside story sounds like there's something hidden you know, that I know about, that I want to let you in on. So hopefully that will pique people's interest. The more serious reason is that I really believe that as we get older, the most important thing we can do for ourselves is to tune into our inner bodies, our inner sensations, and build body awareness. It is so helpful for so many things. For one thing, it helps us take better care of our aging bodies as they get more unstable. It's good for everything. The new research, you know, the, the body science shows that having what's called interoceptive awareness, which means awareness of your inner body sensations, that that's good for everything. Of course, it makes us is happier, good for our well-being. 
It uh, gives us a stronger sense of self. It gives us a more accurate body image, as you can imagine. It's good for emotion regulation, for a sense of being able to take action. It's just good for everything. And I discovered, you know, after I wanted to write about body awareness, just because I knew it was good for me, I discovered this whole new branch of science called interoception. Yeah, and explain what that word exactly means. It's a natural process going on all the time in our bodies and brains. The brain is monitoring our body all the time to see how it's doing. This ensures our survival. So the brain is trying to figure out, you know, the condition of the body, the state of the body. We have these signals coming from, you know, myriad places all over our body. They're nerve signals, you know, their sense of touch, pain, hot, cold, all that. That's being funneled up to places in our brain that then can process that information so that we know what to do to make things better. You know, if we're overheated, you know, we better go take a shower or, you know. So it's absolutely essential for our survival. Are we all... A two, I mean, not necessarily everyone is listening to their body. Exactly. And so how do you become aware of the needs? I mean, obviously you're getting hot flashes or this or signals, but a lot of people don't do anything about it. How do you sort of become attuned to your body? How do you do that? Well, the good news is, is that you can learn to actually build your, what's called interoceptive awareness, your body awareness. People are so different in how they feel their bodies. Some people, like patients of mine, they cannot drop down into their bodies and feel them. They just can't. If they go to a yoga class and and the teacher says, feel your abs, they can't do it. It is something that can be trained. That's what all of the contemplative traditions are really about. I used to think they were sort of about calming the mind. And they are, but even more, even more fundamentally, they're all about building body awareness. Meditation, yoga, tai chi, chanting, breathing. It's all about getting out of the mind, the worried mind, and into the body where it's much calmer and where things are more real. You really find out how you actually are feeling if you drop into your body. So you can do it through these practices, or you can just do it right here, right now. You can just decide, okay, I'm going to move my attention down into my body. You know, maybe I can feel my tummy a little bit more. I can feel my heart beating. I'm feeling my breathing. And then maybe I could just dwell there. And that is so pleasurable. That's why I call it living in your body. You know, actually going about life living in your body. So you talk about the breadth and majesty of our body's offerings and how appreciating our bodies counteracts this sort of obsession we have on our outer appearance. Talk about that a little bit. The breadth and majesty that I'm thinking of mainly is what I've been talking about. The fact that we have this ability to put all this information together and create something out of it that keeps us alive. And then, you know, I mean, we could look at each part of the body and what a miracle it is. The eye is a miracle. The, yeah. <laughs> the nose is a miracle. But 
The idea is that we're so focused in our society on our appearance, on how we look rather than how we feel. And I was getting more concerned as I saw my friends and the people around me getting more and more worried about losing their looks, as they say, just more unhappy with the idea that, you know, of the sags and the wrinkles. And so I think a really good corrective is to think about not so much about how your body looks, but how it feels. And I'm saying that from experience, that you really do feel better if you're living in your body. You're not so focused on the outside, and you're not so focused on trying to change your body. You know, Susie Orbach talks about how as we get older, we're constantly remodeling our bodies. Our bodies become a project. So we're always you know, using diet or exercise or chemical peels or injections or plastic surgery. And all this is fine to some extent. We want to look good, sure. But the whole idea is that we're not okay. And that she says the body has become the site of production. Yeah. We now, we now make bodies rather than making things. Yeah, that's interesting. And it seems younger and younger. I mean, my youngest is 26 and she tells me that some of her friends are doing Botox and doing this and that. And I'm like, at 26? I'm not in favor of putting toxins in your body at any age, but it just shocks me and sort of saddens me that this preoccupation begins earlier and earlier. Yeah, well, there's a whole philosophy to it. The wrinkles won't develop. If you start young, start early, start young. And that's what dermatologists and plastic surgeons, that's what they say in their ads. Start early, start young. So it's a different philosophy. You know, it's all about trying to defeat aging, as if you can. <laughs> right, exactly. So what happens to the mind when you work on defeating aging at such a young age, what happens to you as you get older and older? I mean, it must affect your mind in a severe way or what yeah, happens? Because it gets more and more impossible to transform your body. You know, it becomes clearer and clearer. I mean, the connective, to, you can work on your muscles and you can, with Botox or building them, but connective tissues just decline. And so we've got the thing of the upper inside arm and the neck and, and things are, are constantly getting, it's getting more obvious. We're less stable. Maybe our thinking is slowing down a little bit, maybe a little more distractible, a little more forgetful. And people that have been fighting aging all their lives and they haven't been preparing their minds for this last phase, which is a completely normal phase for all living things, not just people, but animals and snails and trees. You know, we all come into being and then we live for a while and then we die. So somehow, you know, we have to get a bigger picture. I call it zooming out, Yeah. you know, to see the whole lifespan and how each part of the lifespan has its own advantages and benefits and we can learn a lot from it. And it's much better to just accept what is rather than fighting it. Fighting it is a way of not accepting ourselves. Not loving ourselves the way we are. Not loving ourselves, yeah. So what is triumphing over the body, aging, death, nature narrative? It's kind of what I was talking about, you know, trying to defeat death. But the way I talk about it in the book is that we have it more generally in our society. 
this idea that you're supposed to triumph over your body's needs. So, you know, you're supposed to work till you drop. You're supposed to, you know, do extreme sports and get by on five hours of sleep and stuff. So then that easily becomes trying to triumph over aging and to keep aging away as long as possible in all the different ways. And of course, as I said, we want to be as healthy and strong as we can, and we want to look good as we get older. So that's all fine. And exercise is wonderful for us and all kinds of practices. And in fact, exercise is essential for aging, for really healthy aging. But then, you know, we carry it even further. If you're thinking about triumphing over aging, well, then you're really talking about death. Because that's the bottom line as we get older. We're, we're closer to death. I think it's extremely important to try to look mortality in the eye. And this is what Buddhists do. Accept it as part of life. Yes. Yeah. It encourages you to do now what you want to do before it's too late. You know, the Buddha had his disciples go out and look at dead bodies. That was the supreme meditation, was to meditate on death. Because then you realize that it can happen to you not just other people. It can really happen to you. And that's a wake-up call. It's almost like it would benefit us to almost celebrate death like we celebrate a birth or mark it the same way because it is inevitable and it is part of life. You just made me think for the first time. I mean, we have tried to move towards celebration of life ceremonies rather than funerals. But yes. that's still not looking at death. <laughs> right. It's still staying away from something that we fear so much in our society. And you go to India, and so many of these things I'm talking about are just not there. You know, you've got people who've wrapped their dead grandmas in shrouds, and, and they're there in the train station with the dead body. And the burning ghats, you see the bodies there. And also, you can have any kind of body you want in India, except in kind of the westernized new cities. You're not expected to have a young, trim body as you get older. And you're venerated for being older. Yeah, which is so nice it would be. Why is it that women struggle more with this aging process? And why are we sort as women sort of punishing ourselves so much over the natural process of aging? Well, I should say first that men do have trouble with aging, and certain men have more trouble than others. You know, our society isn't just very ageist. It's also sexist still. For women, that's a double whammy for a society to be sexist and ageist. Because, you know, as Simone de Beauvoir said years ago, we see ourselves, many of us at least, through the male gaze. We want to be attractive to men. You know, even if we're gay or transgender or whatever we are, there's still that thing in the society about wanting to look a certain way as a woman. So we're looking at ourselves kind of from the outside as if we're outside ourselves and looking at ourselves through the male gaze. And, you know, for evolutionary reasons, men will always be sexually attracted to young women because of their fertility. You know, it's the way it is. 
But that doesn't mean that we can, as older women, we can try to pretend that we're young, fertile women. You know, we are something else. We're beautiful in our own ways. We have incredible wisdom and the ability to be really happy, too, in a way that we can't when we're younger. How do we change society to look at women as wise and important parts of society rather than sort of brush them off as old? (laughs) Well, in terms of the sexism, I mean, I think we've already done a lot. We've got women in so many high positions and all over the media. And the women's positivity movement has made a lot of strides, you know, with having full-size women in ads. So there's a lot that's happened in our lifetime. That's true. It's really very cool. The ageism is tougher because it's so embedded in our society, you know, that if you're older, you're not as interesting, you're not as valuable, you're not as important, you feel kind of invisible, and so on. And the problem is, is these ageist beliefs are directed against ourselves, too. Our own ageist beliefs are the worst. I think we've got to really work at it, you know, with ourselves, trying to ferret out our ageist beliefs. And we all have them. I mean, do we think that those young people don't really want to talk to us because they find us boring? Just these kinds of things are always coming up. So I think we have to really think about it. And I think we have to start talking about it even more. For a while, there were these things called wise aging groups, where people got together and talked about the transitions of aging. Gloria Steinem has groups like that going. It's like going back to consciousness raising, which was all about sexism, you know, in our youth. I was certainly in those groups. My generation, the older generations, have worked on all these isms. The sexism, you know, the racism and the disabledism and genderism and all of it. And we've made huge progress. But what about ageism? We haven't really taken it on. And I think we should do it, our generation. Yes. Well, your book is going to certainly help. Your book is so interesting because you interviewed people, women. What did you learn that surprised you from some of the people that you interviewed? Or what are some of the interesting stories that came from the interviews? Sort of generally, I think the thing that really kind of blew me away was that everybody that I interviewed, and there were almost 30 women, and these were acquaintances, friends, friends of friends, that kind of thing. It wasn't a research protocol, you know, right. mat- matched sets or anything. They all said that things had gotten better since they got older. Practically all talked about being less anxious. Mm. And then the thing that I really loved is that many of them said something like, I feel more like myself. And that idea, it's hard to explain what that means, more like myself, but we all know what it means. Yeah. That we have some sort of essence and that we're more able to express it. I can be who I damn well please. So that was, that was very, very interesting. When I asked you that question, I thought of how I would answer. Oh, good. I would just say, as I get older, I feel more comfortable in my own skin. Perfect. Yeah. 
That is one of the wonderful benefits of aging because you don't worry about the dumb things that you worried about before. You worry about big problems still, but you don't worry about the insecurity things that you worried about, like, oh, someone's looking at me and, or I'm wearing this dumb thing and someone won't <laughs> like it, or you know what I mean. What a relief, huh? Yeah, it really is. Isn't it wonderful? It's just, you're comfortable in your own skin and that's a huge relief. Now, some aren't. Some women, some are more than others. Some women are still very worried about their appearance and won't go out without, you know, really trying to transform themselves into a younger, more attractive person. You know, what's interesting in that regard is all this research on body dissatisfaction. And these studies show that the majority of Western women throughout their lives are dissatisfied with their appearance. And that's about the shape, usually, of their body. That's how it's measured. Well, what's interesting is that our body dissatisfaction does not get worse as we get older. In fact, it stays kind of the same or even gets a little better. And there's this other measure called body appreciation. So we actually appreciate our bodies more for what they can do. Like, my body can still be healthy and strong. And that body appreciation also has to do with not getting so over-identified with these young, sexy women who are bombarding us on all of our devices. You know, they don't affect us so much. And they don't affect our body image, therefore, so much which is terribly important. As you get older and wiser, you see that for what it is and you don't get sucked into all of that business. We can be happier as we get older, but it's not what people think. It's not what people expect. And that's kind of encouraging. It's very oh, yeah. encouraging. Very. And the, the happiness research is jaw-dropping. You may be aware of this thing called the U-curve of happiness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was a long, a long study done at the University of Chicago. And when they plot happiness for all these different ages, it turns out that people are happiest at the beginning of their lives, the top of the left arm of the U. And then it goes down, down, down. Our unhappiest times are around 47 through 52. It's true for me. And then they start going up again. And the year of greatest happiness is 82. Oh, really? <laughs> That's exciting. It doesn't mean every 82-year-old is the happiest, but there's that trend. Does it have anything to do with our healthcare system because we're living longer and that kind of thing? Or does it just have to do with the brain? It has to do with everything. Everything. I mean, it definitely the brain being less reactive and being able to put a positive slant on things. It helps. Certainly helps a lot. But then there's also a change in our time frame, too. There's mm -hmm. less time ahead, and it's limited. Yeah. So we better make the most of it. So yeah. we tend to kind of cull our activities. Karstensen, who's done a lot of the research, you know, she talks about how people... They really cut down on things so that they're just doing things that make them happy or that are meaningful. They've got a smaller group of friends. So, of course, we're happier if we're just focusing on things that make us more happy. 
Now this, of course, we're talking about fortunate people. Older age can be right. incredibly difficult for certain people. There can be, you know, mental and physical problems that are, you know, really, really difficult. And we don't know if and when those things are going to happen to us. So I don't mean to suggest that life is yeah. a bowl of cherries for every for older everybody. people. The reason Trisha isn't here is because her mom is struggling with dementia. So life is not so great for her right now. Or the people around her, like Trisha. Or the family. It's not so great for her. Yeah. No, it really, really isn't. So is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Because your book is incredibly insightful and helpful. Is, is there anything that we haven't touched on that we should talk about? Well, you know, just to continue what we were just talking about, I have kind of a theory that because our brains are more calmed down and our bodies, without hormones too, our bodies are quieter and slower, we're really primed as we get older to become more embodied, to really live in our bodies. That's true for me. I'm much more embodied as I get older. Thank goodness, because it's so pleasurable. And I think that some people can only really become embodied, which means, you know, that the mind and the body are integrated. That can only happen maybe in older age. So I think that's something to look forward to also. Because of all the distractions we have as we're in our careers and in our families and in our, all the things we're doing, we can't really merge the mind and the body. And as we're older, we have time. Is that what you, you mean? We have the capacity, the time, and with our brain functioning a little differently. Yes. I was particularly thinking about the brain functioning a little differently and the body functioning a little differently. We really are quieter and slower even if we've got a lot going on. We talked a little bit about some of the practices, like you mentioned meditation and some of the things. What would you recommend to people as we're aging to become more connected, mind and body? Is it meditation or what else do you recommend? I recommend anything. I mean... <laughs> You know, uh, I do work with my patients who are having trouble with their anxiety or their thinking or their obsessing or whatever. I, I try to help them drop down in their bodies, just right there, and try to live there. Then when you get there, you check in with your body. How's this? How's this? Oh, my microbiome in my gut is, is a little rumbly. Maybe I should have a little yogurt or miso or something, you know. I see it as an ongoing thing. And I kind of like the Zen idea, too, of just doing what you're doing. So, in other words, if you're having a cup of coffee, try to just drink. Try to just drink and, and really taste the coffee. Because that brings you right into the moment and into your body. And it's so pleasurable, rather than you know, having your coffee and doing today's to-do list. Now, we can't always do that because many of us are busy, but we can do much more of it than we think. Being in the mind and worrying is, is really a habit. And it's sort of useless. Yeah, it doesn't really do much of anything. Right, right. No. But cause and a you lot know of the, heartache. Yeah, and the thing about the science of embodiment or interoception 
is that you know scientists have figured out how it exactly it works and it's much too complicated for me to understand or explain to you it's very mathematically complex <laughs> but it has to do with you feel the sensations in your body and the body then makes predictions about what that might mean let's say you're feeling breathless and the body predicts oh my god i must be getting covid so then the prediction actually becomes your reality i mean it becomes it for a while it becomes that the fear become of covid then becomes your reality but you take a covid test and no you don't have it so that was a prediction error so now you can think about other things why was i feeling breathless the reason the brain does this is that if it had to figure out from every body sensation all the things that it might mean, <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't be efficient. It would be crazy. So what it does is it tries to be more efficient by coming up with certain predictions, which are then constantly getting revised. We go out, we think it's going to be cold outside. Oops, no, it's actually gotten warm. We change our prediction. I've come to think about a lot of psychotherapy and therapy as being about changing our predictions because people that have anxiety disorders, they have a prediction that something is going to happen to them. Something bad is going to happen. And if you can change your prediction, and it, you actually sort of can, at least temporarily. And you, you do that by dropping down? Yes. I think you reset. You reset by dropping down into your body. And then you can have more of a choice. You can say, well, what else could it be? Oh, I see. What so else? you're not just stuck up there with all the things that aren't necessarily true. You're dropping down and that gives you the opportunity to say, hmm, I'm feeling this. It could be this, but maybe not. And you have more of a reasonable yes. back and forth kind of. Exactly. You can question the emotion. Like you can say, well, okay, I'm feeling anxious because I'm predicting thus and so is going to happen. What if I predicted, let's say I'm giving a talk like one right now. I could feel anxious about it ahead of time. And like that's going to be what's going to happen. But then I can drop back down and say, well, what if I don't? What if I imagine really enjoying talking to Doro? A very interesting, kind, older woman who knows a lot about stuff. That might be fun. I'm changing my prediction. Changing the prediction. Yeah, that's fascinating. Just a really interesting way to look at things and sort of deal with what's going on in your mind, which can be something terrible sometimes. Yes, indeed. Especially at 4 a.m. Exactly. When you, exactly. everything feels cold and, and clammy. You know, this research by Becca Levy, there was an article in, in the Times a couple of weeks ago about it. It's just so amazing because she's found through this long research project that people who have ageist beliefs, negative stereotypes about aging, like you lose your pep, everything's downhill. Anyway, they actually, I mean, this affects our physiology so that people with negative stereotypes of aging actually live seven and a half, seven and a half years. Less. Less. Wow. And they're more likely to get Alzheimer's. They're more likely to have heart attacks. 
So we need to change our viewpoint on aging. I mean, I love the idea of we can be happier and calmer and quieter, but happier. I think it's great. What are you doing next? You must be thinking about something wonderful you're doing. Because I'm 75, I sort of feel like I don't want to write another book, at least right now. I want to slow down and enjoy life more. That's the main thing. And I am still in private practice. I love seeing my patients. I just love my work. So I want to do, I want to do more hiking in the hills. I want to spend more time with kids. Writing the book, I sort of let some friendships, not let them go, but I haven't really been taking good care mm-hmm. of friendships and stuff. And I really want to do that. That's sort of it. That's what's next. Well, now you know exactly how to age perfectly, mindfully, and gracefully. <laughs> and you have the blueprint for all of us. So <laughs> I thank you for being on our podcast. And it's just such a pleasure to meet you. And thank you for helping a lot of us age in a more graceful way. Doro, I've totally enjoyed it. You're wonderful to talk to. Thank and you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And I don't have a blueprint. I just have some <laughs> I just have some ideas. Some good ideas. <laughs> thank you so much for being on Health Gig. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>